Welcome to A Higher Branch, a source of practical and powerful information for busy people dedicated to boosting their personal health and professional performance. I'm your host, Sam McCall. Hello and welcome to our Christmas edition of this week's podcast. Now, most of you in our community is familiar with our the eight elements of life. And I believe that the second most important element that defines a human being is the element of love and intimacy. The first, of course, being your physical, mental, emotional and spiritual health. But when it comes to and why I left this podcast for the Christmas edition is because holidays expose the weaknesses and the cracks in our relationship because we uh, are away from work, we have less distractions and we are spending more time with our partner. And, you know, the statistics show that this is when most of the conflict actually occurs. There's a spike in actual uh, divorces and breakups in January after the Christmas holidays. Why is that so? Well, in today's podcast, you will find out a couple of really key things, and it's brought to you by Dr. Guy Winch, who is a practicing psychologist in New York City and one of our faculty members. And he presented this talk at our last Upgrade Your Life event, and it was the most popular talk for couples who attended. 70% of the people who attended the last event were couples, and in the survey responses, they said that what they learned from this particular talk uh, was uh, revolutionary for their relationship. And so in this podcast, Dr. Guy Winch talks to us about uh, a number of things, but the two highlights for me is how you can predict with such certainty whether a couple are going to break up or stay together. And two, how to prevent that breakup through a number of tools and techniques, very practical tools and techniques that all couples can use. Um, One in particular called the complaint sandwich, uh, which was delivered in such a memorable way that everyone in the crowd just goes back to it and refers back to it uh, each each and every time because I do stay in touch with our community and they they tell me that the complaint sandwich is one that they've just uh, etched into their minds from that event. So before I present to you this podcast, I want to remind you about the importance of love. And when I say love, I don't mean in the generic sense, I mean love in the context of an intimate relationship, intimate physical and emotional relationship. My personal experience has proven that loving yourself is difficult, but loving another even more so. And I've learned that nothing good in life comes easy, including a great relationship. You have to work at it by focusing just as relentlessly on love as you would on your career and on your health and on your wealth. You have to pursue love with that same passion and intensity as you would any other goal. Why? Because love completes and defines us. I'll explain why. There are some who feel that they do not need love and intimacy in their life, and I get that. And it may be okay for a time, But I've learned that expressing love awakens a power and energy so strong that it lifts your level of performance in all areas of your life. So it impacts the other areas of your life. I find when my relationship is going really, really well, my performance at work is off the charge. My my performance with my children, with my friends, my general outlook on life, my emotional well-being is at the level of greatness where we all deserve to live. It, it just, it connects the power of your mind with that of your heart. Uh, and for me, it unleashes a source of immense creativity and imagination. Uh, you know, many a brilliant song or art or literature or, you know, even architectural feats was created by someone in love. And I think it's a tragedy to let such a source of great power, you know, be left a chance or even worse, just neglected. And I think it's an even bigger tragedy to find love and to be in a great relationship and end up squandering it or by spoiling it or by neglecting it and not knowing how to nurture it. You know, you need to acknowledge that we were never given a a manual, a book, you know, on love. We were never taught how to love another person in all 12 years at schooling. So sit back, relax, whether you're in your car or in your lounge room, I urge you to actually listen to these podcasts with your uh, uh, partner 
I was going to say your lover because your partner should be your lover at all times. And listen to 50 minutes of what I consider to be a, uh, a one-on-one you know, therapy session with arguably one of the best psychologists in the world on the area of love and relationships. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you Dr. Guy Winch. You have a casual conversation in which you mention you got the giggles at a Broadway show and the next thing you know, all right, uh, I'm learning a lot today. Uh, already. Um, so um, I want to start this way. Psychology has been a science for over a hundred years already. And when it started out after Freud and all of that was done and there was behaviorism, people thought, wow, we're going to be able to predict human behavior. We're going to be able to really predict what people are going to do. Um, and the idea was, if you're going to predict what someone's going to do, uh, if, let's say, uh, a criminal who's up for parole, what's the likelihood of them offending again, right? So will they or won't they? So for a prediction to be useful, it has to be more than a 50-50 chance, because otherwise it's not um, useful. But that, that hope never materialized. Um, psychologists are rarely called upon to predict what people are going to do, because we can't. We're not much better than a uh, 50-50 chance because human behavior is very complex. So we can't really um, do that. Now, sometimes we can do a little bit better. We might, let's say, predict with a 60% likelihood that that criminal will offend. But really, what, what judge is going to make a decision based at 60% likelihood? It's just not good enough. Now, in hindsight, we're great. If you want us to explain why somebody did something they already did, oh, we're good to go. But to predict forward, that we really, um, we really can't do. But there's an exception to that rule, and it's a whopper. There is one form of human behavior we can predict with accuracies of over 94%. 94%, that's incredibly accurate. And what is that behavior we're predicting? Well, if you, if you looked at your program, you no doubt have noticed this is about relationships. And that behavior is a divorce. Couples therapists and trained researchers about couples can look at a few minutes of a couple interact and predict with accuracies of over 94% whether that couple is going to stay together. And we can also predict whether they're going to be happy in their relationship. So that's quite incredible because we can't do that with any other form of human behavior. So what is it we see there? When we're looking at a couple interact, what is it we're seeing that tells us with such certainty that they're going to stay together or not? What is it they're doing that indicates that? What is it they're not doing, perhaps, that indicates that? And today, I'm gonna to give you the answer to those questions. And to that issue, I'm going to tell you some of the secrets, the tools of the trade of how we do that. Now, these are not secrets like, you know, I'm divulging something of the secret therapy guild or something. I'm not, my life isn't in danger for saying these things. These are just things people don't know. And in that sense, they're, they're secrets. Um, but the really better news is I won't just be telling you these things, but to be able to change your relationships, to conform, to be able to do the things you want to do for the relationship to last and be happy, and not do the things you shouldn't be doing. Sometimes, and a lot of the times, it's a small little tweak that you need to change. These are not massive changes you need to make. And sometimes many of these very small efforts will yield an incredible result. So let's get started, all right? I'm gonna get started with a case study from my practice. All names have been changed. Um, I'm terrible at coming up with fake names, so they're all gonna be like, Stu well, right. Um, so uh, Ken and Abby, that's original. So Ken and Abby, uh, both in their middle 30s, came to, see, came to see me after having a huge fight that almost broke up their marriage. For the first time in their 10 years, the word divorce was hurled in that argument. They were extraordinarily shaken up by it. That had never happened to them before. And they sat in my office. They were clearly distraught. They had been fighting more and more over the past few months. And that fight made them realize they can't go on like this. So I said to them, tell me about the fight. And they looked at one another and they said, uh, no. Usually when couples come because of a fight, they want to talk about, that's what they come for, really. Um, it's like going to the doctor, what hurts? No, I don't think I'm gonna tell you what hurts. <laughs> 
for the doctor, it makes it a little tricky. So um, I said, why? And he said, well, it was stupid. I'm like, come on. Most fights are. They go, no, no, no. It was really, really stupid. And I'm like, now I'm curious. So I'm like, oh, please tell me, what was it about? And um, Ken said, um, it was about where to put the dish rag. I'm like, excuse me? And then <laughs> Abby says, and she says it like this, I'm going to quote. The dish rag, you know, the dish rag, the one you shouldn't hang on the tap where the water comes out and touches it and dribbles all the germs into the cup you're filling, that dish rag? And Ken says, if you put it in the soap dish, it can't dry out. And Abby goes, it touches the water when the water comes out. And at this point, I said like, um, it's very stupid. You're right. That, that was a very, <laughs> a very, very stupid argument. But the thing is, couples always fight about stupid things. It's always stupid things. Dish rag actually to me took the cake, but nonetheless, it's, it's usually, it's usually, it's stupid stuff. No one ever said, no one ever, you know, comes in and goes, those are your thoughts about geopolitical stability and world peace. I'm out. That doesn't happen. <laughs> it's, it's dish rags. You know, it's the wet towels on the floor. It's like, it's that stuff. So I'm going to ask you, what do you think couples fight about most? What are the topics? Who wants to throw out some ideas? Money number one, not in order, but like that's one of the top kids. Yes, so sorry, but it's your fault. Anyway, so now I can. Um, number two, and what was the other one? Say again. Chores. I thought you said nuptials, which was actually the correct answer. Um, so I'm going to go with that. Um, and now uh, it used to be those three, and now there's a fourth. Anyone? No. Screens, little screens with numbers on them. Phones, tablets, laptops, screens. Number, you know, that used to be nowhere, and now it's like, woof, right up in the middle. Um, and in fact, there's research about the screens. There's um, uh, research that showed that um, cell phone use is such an interference in relationships that there's studies that show that it causes um, real feelings of depression. It lowers life satisfaction. They call it technoference. In other words, it's literally something that can disrupt. And why it's so disruptive is that when you're at home with your partner and you're talking and suddenly you're on your phone, the message you're giving is, this is more important than you or than our conversation. Or if we're sitting and we're having dinner and then suddenly you're doing this, it's like, oh, this is much more interesting. I'm sorry, whatever you were saying, this is more interesting. There's no way you can be with someone, and it's not about... Uh, relationship, this is friendships, whoever, whoever you're with in a one-on-one, -on -one, in a group setting, if you're on your phone, if you're looking at your phone, the message you're giving is this is more important. It's insulting globally. So I'm just pointing that out. Um, that's, that's number uh, four in terms of that. So one tweak you can already uh, do to upgrade your relationship, and uh, Carl spoke about this yesterday, and um, probably a lot of people are going to mention it, it's really important, is have rules about when phones, um, phone usage is allowed. Have zones which are phone-free. Have times which are phone-free. And my suggestion, uh, Carl yesterday spoke about family dinners. So much research but how important that is. No phones at family dinners. Leave them out. Leave them out of the bedroom. Anyway, so that's, that's one thing. So what couples argue about tells us nothing about their relationship. It is not what couples argue about that makes a difference. It's how they argue that matters. How they argue, how couples deal with conflict tells us everything we need to know about the relationship, how long they'll be together, whether they'll be happy. So what is it we're really looking at when we look at how a couple argues? What is it we're looking to see when we're looking at how they deal with conflict in general? Do they get defensive the minute someone starts speaking, the other one gets really defensive? Do they use name calling, put downs? Do they raise their voice and escalate? Or do they just completely shut off and stop communicating? Um, how to argue is what couples need to learn how to do. Because if you do that right, then you do the relationship right. Now, um, in 
My many years of experience of doing this, over 20 years of doing couples therapy, one of the most unfortunate things I find is that there are one, there's one very preventable disconnect that happens when couples are arguing. You feel in this argument, if you've been in this moment, you all have, I'm sure, that you're arguing about something and the other person isn't listening to you. They're not addressing what you're saying. They're arguing, but it's as if they're not listening. And they're not, because the most common thing that happens in arguments is that couples are actually arguing about something that sounds the same, but it's two different arguments they're having. So one of them is arguing this thing, and the other one is arguing that thing, and they're not addressing um, one another. They believe they're arguing about the same thing, but in fact, they're not. For example, one person is arguing about whether they should go on vacation to point A or point B, and the other one is arguing about why they don't get to make decisions enough in a relationship. It can sound like it's the same argument, but it's different. And I'll give you an example. I'll read you some lines of an argument, and let's see if you can tell what they're arguing about or if they're arguing about the same thing. Okay, husband says, I haven't seen my parents in a month. The wife says, but your mother is always so rude to me. The husband says, but she's my mother, I want to see her. And the wife says, she makes me feel bad in my own house. Husband says, I don't make a stink when your parents come to visit and on it goes. They're having two separate arguments. The husband is arguing about the fact that he wants his parents to come to visit. The wife is trying to have a discussion about what happens when his parents come to visit. It sounds to them like they're having the same argument, but they're not. Either they're gonna talk in parallel lines and they're, not, and they're gonna feel very frustrated because they're actually not addressing the other one's concern. That argument can really escalate because it gets really frustrating that no one's listening to you. And that is extraordinarily common. And I sit in therapy with couples all the time and I pause and I do the thing that I'm going to suggest. Here's one thing I'd like you to really make a note of it because it's important. When you are in an argument with your partner, truly even with a friend, and you have that feeling of, wow, they're just really not listening. Here's what you do. A, timeout. You call a timeout. You take a piece of paper or your phone. And then number one, you write down each of you what it is you think you're arguing about. Define it. Be specific. So it's not money. That's, let's say, you know, that's too general. It's that I'm annoyed that we agreed to cut spending and you purchased this thing without telling me. Um, and the other one might write, I'm annoyed that you trying to control what I purchase when I don't try to control what you're purchasing. Another classic example of an argument that's going to go this way and go on and on because they're actually not arguing about the same thing. So when that happens, Write down, number one, what you think you're arguing about. Number two, what you think your partner is arguing about. And then when you're done, switch notes. And if it's indeed two similar but slightly different things, two separate discussions. Decide, okay, let's discuss this first, and then we'll discuss this. And that will save a lot of time because a lot of these arguments, actually not arguments, they're not disagreements. They're just miscommunications, misunderstandings. And it's a shame, but those are a huge percentage of couple conflict. And they're the ones that often escalate because there's a fundamental misunderstanding about what you're talking about. So um, the real reason most arguments go badly with couples happens at the starting gate. And that is the first person who brought up the issue did not do it correctly. They did not bring up their complaint correctly. Um, we know that if I ask most people, uh, some people sometimes, oh, my wife really annoyed me. This happened. Did you tell her? Nah. Why not? Eh, it'll start an argument. In other words, most people are more likely to complain about their spouse to a friend, to their barber, to the bartender, to a stranger in the locker room at the gym than they are to address it to their partner. This is just true. And the good reason for it is we just don't want to start an argument. Why have conflict? The problem is when you don't voice these things, then you accumulate a lot of resentment and a lot of frustration. And then when you finally decide to talk about it, bleh, everything comes out. It comes out extraordinarily harshly. We call it the kitchen sink. Everything goes into the argument, the dish rags, the kitchen sink, the towel on the floor, everything that went bad, it all comes up. That never goes well. So being able to voice complaints to a partner when we have them is crucial. And when I say voice them, I mean productively, usefully, 
That is how couples make course corrections, which are necessary all the time. Now, my first book is called The Squeaky Wheel, and it's about the psychology of complaining. And I wanted to write it because I noticed in my practice that there was something very wrong in how we think about complaints. We have such a defeatist attitude, in part because we think it's not going to go well. Why speak up? And so I went to the library, I sat and I read the journals, and I realized, oh, there's good research here, and I know how to do it well. Let me write a book about that. So I approached um, an agent, and I said to her, um, I, there is no book out there, which there wasn't, about the psychology of complaining, and I would be the perfect person to write it. And she looked at me and she said, because you're Jewish. And I said, because I'm a psychologist. <laughs> now, she said this because she's Jewish. And she thought, well, Jews, the biggest complainers. But when we try to sell the book internationally, then um, the, who the, the Koreans were the first. The Korean editors go, oh, we love this. Koreans are the biggest complainers. And the Chinese editors said, oh, we're going to take it. Chinese are the biggest complainers. And then the Polish said, no, no, no. Poles are the biggest complainers. Everyone thought they have some kind of monopoly on complaining. Everyone's like, oh, we are such complainers. Well, yeah, we all, we all are. It doesn't matter where we're from. We all are. It's not a Jewish thing. It's not a Polish thing. It's not an Australian thing. We are all very uh, prolific complainers. In addition to being prolific, we suck at it. We're terrible at it. The research shows that on average, for example, if you buy something and you're not pleased with it, 95% of people will not complain to the company about the product because they think it'll be too time consuming and too frustrating. Instead, they will tell an average of 16 people about how upset they are with a product, spending way too much time, getting really aggravated, and certainly getting no result because that's a better approach. So the idea is we do not know how to complain effectively, and this is especially true in relationships. So I'm going to ask you to think back to a time, uh, as recent as you want, that you voiced a complaint to your partner. So I'll give you a second to think of it. Think of something that you, you know, you had this, th those three words that, you know, every person hates. Four, sorry, four words. We need to talk. Like that's never an appetizing evening uh, for anyone, right? But think back to the last time, you know, you had the, we need to talk and think about what the complaint was for a minute. Um, just so you really have it clear in your mind. All right, um, by show of hands, how many of you thought through carefully what you were going to say before you brought it up? Okay, so that's not a lot. Of those people who raised their hands, how many of you thought through carefully beforehand what the result was that you were trying to get? Okay, so that's five, six, seven people. That's, there we are. You see, there's the issue. Now, when I say to people, in a session, oh, and I brought this up and I'm like, okay, great. What, what were you trying to achieve? I don't know. All right. What could your partner have done or responded in a way that would be satisfying? I don't know. I just wanted to say it. Well, there we are. That's why arguments happen, right? Because there's no even, there's no, if you don't have a goal, there's no exit ramp. If, you know, like reach the goal, argument done, you know, ding, 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 flag. But if there's none of that, it just keeps going. So even the most basic step of actually thinking through what do I want to achieve here? We don't do. That is the first thing you have to do when you have a complaint. Ask yourself, what are you trying to get? What do you want? What do you want from them? If you don't know what you want from them, they're not going to know what they want or what they should do. So that's the first thing. Maybe you want just an admission of, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realize, or a recognition of wrongdoing. Maybe you want to make up. Maybe you want to promise. Maybe you want them to, you know, like start thumping their chest and tell, I'm so sorry. Whatever it is, Figure out what you want. Now, um, I'm going to use an example. Here's another incident, specific incident. This one happened just a couple of weeks ago um, because I'm going to tell you how to formulate these complaints. But let's look at a specific incident. Uh, um, Joe and Cindy will call this couple, right? All right. Here's how they described the argument. And I'm going to read what they said. Joe, you knew I was really looking forward to seeing this film. And you knew we had to leave by five o'clock, he says to his wife. But you just didn't care. I came looking for you at five, and you were on your laptop, working away, clueless about the time. Cindy says, I was doing that report for work, and you knew it was important, 
And then she turns to me and she said, I immediately closed the laptop when Joe came in. Immediately, the second he came in, but he just lost it and started yelling. And Joe said, because you weren't ready. And Cindy said, I closed the laptop. I was ready. And Joe said, you weren't ready. And I said to Joe, excuse me, what makes you so convinced she wasn't ready? And Joe said, she was naked. <laughs> All right, convincing, very convincing. So I look at Cindy, because now I'm an idiot. And um, she said, well, I just have to throw on some clothes. It takes two minutes. And Joe said, it took 20. And Cindy said, because you kept yelling at me, so I couldn't do it. Typical argument, except for the nakedness. Um, so for Joe, Cindy's lateness was a huge issue. And it always caused these big arguments. And it's one of those questions you have to ask because couples usually have repetitive arguments. Like I call them the greatest hits. The themes they keep arguing about. And how can you have an argument 30 times and still not figure it out? How could you possibly like keep going around and around? Oh, let's have this one again. And everyone's bored by it. They can script each other's responses and then they'll just huff and sleep in different rooms. So obviously, we need to figure out how to resolve these things. Um, so um, what I said to Joe is like, what did you want to achieve by having that argument? And she said, I don't know, of course, because he hadn't thought about it. And then finally said, you know what I want? I want to figure out a way that I don't have to get so stressed out whenever we have to go somewhere because she is going to be late. I'm like, okay, specific goal. Now we have something to work with. And when I asked him, okay, had you thought about that ahead of time, would you have approached Cindy the same way? He said, no. I said, good. How would you have approached her? And this is what the essence of it um, is about. He said, I don't know because I don't want the confrontation. Now, here's one problem. A complaint is a confrontation of sorts. Confrontation sounds like a fist fight. It's not a fist fight. But is it a tense moment when someone's telling you that they're not pleased with something you did? Yes. There's, we can call it a confrontation. It's a small one. But you can't get around that. The idea is to keep it contained. Keep it a small confrontation. So the trick in voicing a complaint to your partner, the trick is to voice it in such a way that they get very uh, the least defensive as they can get, that they don't get terribly defensive, that doesn't feel like a, con like a confrontation right off the bat. And the way to do that is to use a simple formula. I call it the complaint sandwich. It's a formula some of you know, but the devil is in the details of this. The complaint sandwich has two positive statements and a complaint in the middle. And those are important. Um, let's go through it. The first positive statement, I call it the ear opener. And the goal of it is to let the person know that something's coming in a way that doesn't make them too defensive. So it opens their ears. So it has to be a positive statement, right? Now, sometimes I'll say to a couple, or I'll say, in this case, it was Joe, I said, so if you were gonna start with a positive statement, what would it be? And he said, um, I like the way you did your fingernails. Okay, but it's nothing to do with what you're talking about, so that doesn't quite uh, work. The positive so um, a positive statement might be something like, you know, I really look forward to our date night. Or I have such a good time going to the movies with you. Simple. If you're Cindy at that point, you're like, your antenna are up, you know, something's coming, but you're not, you know, in battle mode. So the first slice of bread is the ear opener. The meat of the complaint sandwich is the actual complaint. Um, or your request for redress, for, for, you know, for a responsive kind. The meat should be lean, as lean as possible. Um, it's a single incident. It's a single principle. You do not need to take a running start from 1993 about all the times the offense happened. Because if your point is lateness, it doesn't matter she was late 105 times. Your point is made equally when you say you're late now. And that's much easier to hear. So the meat should be leaned. No greatest hits with, with that. Um, here it would be, look, I know you try to be on time, but it's really frustrating when I think we're going to be late to the movies. Or I get stressed out when I see you're not ready, even if you're just two minutes away from being ready. And it takes me a while to calm down, so I don't quite enjoy the first part of the evening because I'm still calming down. That's easy to understand. It's easy to hear. Right? So lean meat. And the next slice of bread, the last one I call the digestive. That's the spoonful of sugar that makes the message go down. And the point here is the message to your partner that if they respond in the way that you're asking them to, things will be good. Because it's that promise of things will be good at the end that will motivate someone to respond to what you want, to give you what you want. Because you're telling them, if you do, things will be cool. 
So that's much more motivating than you're a bad person. And even if you fix it, I'll still be mad, which is kind of the text we usually kind of the subtext we usually um, communicate. So that has to end positively. So Joe could say, if we could come up with a strategy so that you are ready on time when we have a date night, it would make me really happy. Or it would mean a lot if you could set a reminder on your phone. It's a specific ask. If you could set a reminder on your phone when we have a date night, so you're ready on time. That would mean a lot to me. So how much easier would it be for Cindy to respond if that's what Joe said? It's so much easier to hear. Now, a couple of condiments uh, for your sandwich. Number one, tone. Keep the tone civil. If the tone is too sharp or if you're too angry, what people pay attention to is the tone, not the message. So you might be saying something important and all they're hearing, oh, she's, he's so angry. Look how red his ears get when he gets angry like that. And then there's a little twitch he gets in his eye. Really, he's just so furious. That's what's going on in Cindy's head. And he's not listening to what Joe's saying. So tone, calm, and civil. Um, number two, only one complaint per discussion, only one incident per complaint. Lean uh, meat. And number three, be as specific as possible. People will respond when there's something specific they can do. Like this thing about set your phone with reminders is terribly specific. It's much easier to say, yeah, I can do that. So be as specific as possible with what um, you're asking. Now, um, having to do that sounds simple, right? I mean, the, the formula is simple. Here's the problem. You are frustrated in that moment. You're angry in that moment. You have to contain that. And that's not easy to do. You have to kind of take a deep breath, maybe a few minutes of meditation, truly, I'm not joking, um, and calm yourself so that you can deliver that correctly. The problem is, it is not going to be as viscerally satisfying as yelling or as just dumping out or as just venting or as just doing all the run through of the greatest hits. It just feels much better to do that in the moment. It doesn't get you what you want. It causes an argument and it makes for a shitty marriage. But... It feels great in that moment. We have to be adults and take the less satisfying in the short term uh, route and the more satisfying in the long term route. So get a handle on yourself, take a deep breath and voice it well. It takes some planning. It takes some thinking to strategize how you're going to do the complaint sandwich, but do it. It takes five, ten minutes, but it will make for really productive discussions. Now, that is the easier part of the equation. The more complicated part of the equation is not how to voice a complaint. It's how to receive one because we're going to get naturally defensive. We're just being told we've done something wrong. Now, I asked you earlier to think of a time when you had a complaint to your partner. Can you bring that thing up again? There is something all of you wanted in that moment that's the same. No matter what your complaint was, there is one thing you really wanted from your partner that you probably didn't even realize that you wanted. And it's the same thing. You all wanted the same thing. And that is to feel understood. When we're frustrated, when we're angry, we want our partner to get it, primarily. Even more than we want them to say, yes, we'll not be late and we'll fix this and we'll fix that. We want to know they get it. It's called validation, emotional validation. It is super important. Now, when we are upset, and let's say I'm upset and I vent to a friend, or if you vented to a friend about something, if you went on and on and on for 20 minutes about how angry this was and how upset you were, and, and then this happened and this happened and this happened, and they listen and they go, and you finish and then they go, bummer. It doesn't, it's not satisfying. It doesn't do much for you. You're like, that's it. The ingredient we're looking for is not just that they get it, but they convey it. We have to know they get it. So nodding and going, bummer, doesn't do it. The tricky part is actually conveying that you get it. That's the difficult part. So, um, and it's very, very cathartic when somebody does that for you. Now, conveying that in kind of emotional validation is actually tricky for one reason. If I'm, I'm telling you that when your partner is angry with you, the message you have to give them is, I understand why you're angry. I agree that you should feel angry in this situation. And I'm completely with you in why you're so angry. That feels like a dangerous thing to do. If they're angry at me and I'm telling them, yeah, you're completely right to be angry. I'm just pouring fuel on the fire. But emotional validation has a paradoxical effect. It actually douses the flame. Because when someone looks at you when you're angry and you go on and on and on about what's frustrating you or upsetting you, and they look at you and they go, 
I totally get it that you would feel this way and this and this and this and this. It feels great. Um, here's, um, let's go back to the complaint and I'll give you an example. So Cindy's working on a project. Joe comes in and, um, go, you know, you're not ready. This is, she's all up, you know, he's very upset. He's yelling at her. Now for her to turn around and validate his emotions feels very, very dangerous. But here's what Cindy could have said. She said, um, I totally get how frustrating it is when you're looking forward to a date night and it comes time to leave and I'm not ready and I'm busy with something else. And it must look as if our date night's not important to me at all. And it must look like I'm not prioritizing it at all. It must be a stress, especially frustrating and stressful because I've done that a lot in the past. So I totally get how annoyed you are and how frustrated you are. That sounds like a lot to ask of Cindy because she's actually admitting, sounds like that she's wrong, that he has every right to be angry with her. In fact, she didn't admit she was wrong at all. And she has a good counter. But what she did do is validate why Joe is upset. So you have to do it from the other person's point of view, from the other person's perspective. You have to get them to feel like, yeah, because if Joe's sitting there and Cindy says that, he goes, yeah, that's right. She gets it. And there's a, a release, an exhale that comes with that. His temper already goes down, but it's difficult to do. Why that's not admitting that you're wrong is because it's not. Because what Cindy then went on to say was the following. Um, do you remember she said it must seem like a date night isn't important. What she went on to say is, but if you remember, Joe, I told you this morning, I might have to reschedule our date night because of my work project. And I considered doing that because I was so behind, but I knew how much you were looking forward to seeing that film. So I showered early. I did my makeup. I did my hair. I laid out my clothes and I just sat at the laptop and tried to get as much work done as possible before we were leaving because I knew how important that was, even though I'd have to stay up late when we got home. So that's why I was still working. It's a good defense. So validating Joe's emotions didn't take away Cindy's argument. Didn't mean she's actually guilty. Now, imagine how easy it must be for Joe to listen to that and feel like, oh, A, she does care. She was being thoughtful. She wasn't being dismissive, right? So if you take all the arguments you've had with your partner and you combine them with a complaint sandwich and a response of emotional validation, what would that do to the tone of conflict in your home? It would lower it drastically. It would convey a feeling of caring. Like, you can be angry with me, but I still care about you. And I'm going to show you that because I'm going to show you that I get why you're angry, even if I have a really good excuse. And if you want to voice something that's important, I'll listen and I'll try and validate what's important. And then we can have a productive discussion about what to do. So this complaint sandwich is a bit artificial because it has to slow you down. And emotional validation slows down your natural response of punch and counterpunch. But that's what makes the how to do productive conflict. And when people are looking at couples and how they argue, the couples that can do it in this kind of way that have a clear communication, that don't rake up all the past, that have these nice statements on either side to really balance out what they're saying. And the ones in which emotional validation happens and people are like really acknowledging the other person's feelings, those couples go on to have really long relationships and really happy marriages. So it's a tweak. It's a slightly tricky tweak because it goes against our natural instinct of how we fight. But if you adopt it, and if you, especially if both members of the couple adopt it, it is the most powerful way that you can reduce conflict within the home. One more thing goes with that though. Um, you can probably have 30 things you can complain to your spouse about on a given day. This ragging on. So be careful, be choiceful. The balance we strive for is 80-20. Have you heard of the 80-20 ratio? 80-20 meaning 80% of your communications have to be positive or neutral. Only 20% have to be negative or directive. It's true in terms of parenting as well with kids. 80% positive, neutral, 20% directive or negative. So using the complaint sandwich, using emotional validation are super, super important for reducing conflict. And couples who can do it, and it will take practice. Right? So here's one exercise for you to do later. Write down the complaint you had to your partner that I asked you to think about. Um, and 
then write down later. And if you want to come to me and say, how is this? I'll, I'll, if not too many of you, I'll give you notes on how to, but write down how you would phrase it in the complaint sandwich form. And then for the sake of argument, write down how you would respond to it with emotional validation. And you'll see, ooh, seems simple. It actually takes some thought, some planning. But practice it in writing in this example so you can get a, a taste of it, right? Super important. So that's what reduces conflicts. But what makes couples happy? What are the things that couples do that make for a happy relationship? And here, again, it's about the small stuff. There is something called bids. Bids are small gestures couples make to one another to connect or for closeness. Um, a bid can be um, you're sitting, you're both working on your laptops, and one of them looks up and goes, oh, look what a pretty bird is on the windowsill. Now you're in the middle of an email in a very tricky sentence. Do you say, just a minute? Or do you say, uh, I'm busy, I told you I'm busy. Or do you look up and go, oh yeah, that's very pretty. It's a tiny moment, but those moments are the ones that makes for happy marriages. That slice of tiny, tiny response to a positive bid is what makes, these are happy couples right there. They know, right? Like you, you respond to that. And just by the number of times you use the word cuddle in your talk, uh, I know they're happy. So, because um, there was a lot of cuddling going on. But um, these bids are hugely important. They're the most overlooked part of relationships. These tiny moments, they can come in a way that you're reducing conflict, right? Like a couple might be arguing because their teenage kid came home smelling of cigarette smoke. And in the middle of that argument about what to do, one says, do you remember we met when we were still teenagers? Now, if the other person says, what's that got to do with it? Sam is missing the bid. If you pause for a minute and go, we were almost his age when we met. Suddenly, all the tension goes down. And I notice that with couples, in the, in the middle of an argument, bids will come all the time in small ways and get missed. These exit ramps to arguments are there. You have to attune yourself to them so you can take them. And so responding to bids is a really, really important thing. Um, bids can be you pause the television when you're watching something and you turn to your partner and you say, hey, do you remember that time that we went skiing and such and such? Or you just take their hand when you're walking somewhere. Or you just text them, sorry, you text them in the middle of the day and you just text them a kiss, thinking of you. Tiny, small moments. I'm gonna give another one. Um, a lot of times, um, the men in, in my practice will say to me like, you know, it's just so much work to get my wife to be pleased with me. And I'm like, it's usually not, Here's one thing you can do that's going to make a lot of women happy on a, small, on a regular basis. When there's a holiday, when there's Valentine's Day, when there's a birthday, when there's an anniversary, get a card. Now, I'm not saying this for the card industry, but a lot of times a card, and don't use the sentiment in the card, write something. Take 10 minutes to write something. Because what I hear, and this is, this is really true, is a, a couple comes and they argue, he was terrible on Valentine's Day. I brought you flowers, he'll say, because you did. I didn't find out till the next day because he came home, smashed them on the kitchen sink and walked away. I'm like, I'm sorry, did you buy her flowers? Yes. Did you give her the flowers you bought her? She saw them. Like she could see them in the store. They're not, you know, like just make the gesture. Like do something that's personal. Small moments make for a big, um, big difference. So. The conflict is one thing. The small bids and paying attention to them is another. My suggestion, put out three bids a day to your partner. If they don't respond to them, alert them, especially if both of you are here or you can communicate that to your partner. Three small bids a day. It can be as small as kiss hello, kiss, good, kiss goodbye when you're leaving and coming. When somebody comes home and the other person is home, greet them. Don't let them come and like make it so that you are welcomed. Small things like that is what saves marriages a lot of the time. It's not a big overhaul. It's small tweaks in conflict and it's small tweaks in positive, positive bids. Now, there's one other thing I want to cover. And this story um, starts in the 1960s. And this is when America and the Soviet Union were in a Cold War and in a space race. And they were starting to send astronauts up into space. 
and something really interesting happened with the American and the Soviet astronauts. They both had a really similar experience. Being up in space, looking down at the Earth, changed their perspective entirely. And even though they were in a Cold War, and much to the chagrin of the Soviets and the Americans, they would come back and say things like, it made us realize that we are all on one planet, that we are all people, that we all share this Earth. Not what the Americans or the Soviets wanted to hear from their astronauts, you know, with a kumbaya and the hand-holding. But both Soviets and American astronauts had a real change of perspective when they came back, when, when they came, when they were in space and after they came back. Now, some of you might be thinking, oh, does he want us to marry an astronaut? What, what's he saying this for? Um, a change of perspective um, is super important. And the one I want you to adopt, and a shift in perspective is always a shift. You have to really change your thinking. But I want you to think of your couplehood as not involving two people, but as being a threesome of a specific kind. You are three people in your relationships. You are one person, you are the other person, and you are the relationship. The relationship is a separate entity from each of you. For one reason, the relationship has separate needs than you do. One of you might have this need, the other one might have that need. The relationship's needs might be really, really different. And you need to ask yourself, what does the relationship need? Not what do I need, not what do they need, what does the relationship need? Now, let's go back to Ken and Abby, who had the fight about the dish rag. Here's what was going on with them. Um, they both had demanding jobs. They had three young kids. One of them had cerebral palsy. Um, Ken worked at home. Um, Abby was a busy executive and they were about to start a renovation on their house because Ken needed a better workspace and they were gonna convert the basement into a real workspace and they were gonna change the kitchen because Abby loves cooking and they really, the kitchen wasn't really conducive to cooking. And they were arguing and I said, what do you need from one another at this moment? And Ken said, I need Abby to make time so we can go over the floor plans for building out the basement because he was desperate to have this office. And Abby said, she needed Ken to supervise, since he was home, the kitchen renovation. She knew it would be disruptive, but it would really be useful because she was dying to have that new kitchen. Here's my question to you. So that's what Ken wanted. That's what Abby needed. What did their relationship need? Anyone? And just uh, more, I can't hear. Specifically? Say again? Did you say? Okay, actually, that's the correct answer. But um, again, the cuddlers. All right. But here's the, um, here's the thing. What I think that they needed is, and I, this is what I said to them. I said, you have demanding jobs, three young kids, one with special needs, you're already overworked and overstressed, and your fights are getting so bad, you're throwing out the word divorce. And your thought is, I know, let's do construction on our home, within our home, for three to six months in which we do not have use of the kitchen. I said, now is the time to do that? They were about to start the next week. So what their relationship needed was no construction right now and a naughty week. I didn't say naughty. I just said weekend, but I'm all with you. But and get your babysitter there and go away. They had never had a weekend alone since the first kid was born. Not one. So if you ask yourself, what does the relationship need? You come up with a very different answer than you do if you ask, what do I need? What do you need? How do we argue about what we each need? The relationship is a third entity in your marriage or your relationship, and you have to consider it most. Because if you do what's right for the relationship, by definition, you're doing what's right for you. Intimacy and love and caring are the relationship. If you nurture that, if you pay attention to that, that will flow to you. But you literally have to pause and ask, what does our relationship need at this juncture? What, is the, what will help the relationship thrive? And you will come up with very, very different answers than you do um, if you're just asking about you need, you need, and what the conflicts are there. Relationships are partnerships. Um, like any partnership, uh, it needs a managerial team. And you are the managerial team. And managerial teams need to have regular meetings, regular discussions about the partnership. 
regular talks about how things are going. You don't wait until things accumulate to the point where you can't stand them. Check in on a regular basis. What I say to my patients is, I travel a lot. Here I am now for a week. And I always, it's a great excuse, by the way, but I don't use it. I used it before I travel that much, is have a session without me. I'm not there for the session. You have one. And come with me with notes about what went well and what didn't. But have the session. Have an hour a week, an hour a month that you sit and talk about how's it going in our relationship? What do we need to address? What's tense? What's unresolved? How can we make it better? What does the relationship need? Have that discussion once a month, once every two weeks, intense times, once a week. But be in charge of your relationship. It doesn't happen on autopilot. You are in a ship and you are captaining the ship together. And if you don't have both your hands on the wheel of that ship, you'll go onto the rocks. It takes both of you to navigate. And with both and with many couples, they say to me, well, you know, if it was meant to be, it'll work out. That's BS. It is nothing that's meant to be. You are in charge of it. But be managers. Managers know that, well, we have to have management meetings. We can't just manage by osmosis. So have management meetings. Look at what the relationship needs. Because I think that if you use a complaint sandwich, if you validate each other's emotions when you're upset or hurt or angry, if you respond to small bids and you make them on a regular basis and you constantly communicate to your partner that I see these small things, they matter, you matter. And if you see your relationship as a separate entity that needs to be asked about and cared for, all those things will provide you with much, much smoother sailing. Thank you very much.